Before today's episode, I just have a special message to share. For those of you who don't know, there have been a lot of layoffs in the world recently. Everything from the tech sector to the entertainment sector. Money is tight and times are hard. One of those layoffs came with this very company to this very show. Our dear friend and genius and producer, Abigail Keel. Abigail taught me so much, taught this show so much, allowed this show to become what it is with her and all her genius. So if anyone listening is looking for a genius producer of podcast, hit up Abigail Keel. You'll be able to find her. I just want to say we love her. We thank her. And let's get on with the show. Hispanic, Latino, Latina. These terms have been used to identify some of us over time, but Latinx, a term used as a gender neutral, has been quite the controversy. The Pew Research Center has reported that only 23% of U.S. adults who identify as Hispanic or Latino have actually heard the term Latinx. Some elected officials have even denounced the term. And just over a month ago, Republican governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, yes, her, announced that she plans to ban the usage of the term Latinx in state documents. She says that the word is culturally insensitive, and she plans to remove the term from all government documents. But check it, y'all. She is white. Yes, she ain't Latina or Latinx. She's not even brown or a part of this community, our community. So why is she so preoccupied with this word, this phrase, this identifier? Personally, I think that white people have been trying to tell us what box we belong in and what we should be called for a long time. But in order to give more context to my thoughts, wrap my head around it, I knew I couldn't do it alone. So I invited a special guest who is truly an inspiration, also a friend, not just for the Brown community, but for everyone. I was born in Mexico, uh, and my experience as a Mexican in the United States is different than my experience as a Mexican in Mexico. This is Julissa Arce. She's the author of three amazing books, which you can cop right now, My Underground American Dream, Someone Like Me, and her most recent, You Sound Like a White Girl, where she talks about assimilation and her identity. My name's Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough. Stories of all the beautiful brown folks and bodies of culture. Here we go, y'all. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Before Julissa and I got into our conversation about this term Latinx, I hit her with some rapid-fire questions to get to know her a little bit more. You've heard us do this before with some other guests, and here's what she had to say. I'm sure you have many authors you love. If you had to pick one, which author has inspired you the most? 
Reina Grande. I continue to write for the same reason I first put pen to paper when I was 13 years old. If you were running for president, what's one law you would enact right off the bat? Comprehensive immigration reform. Anybody who's in the country, undocumented, would get citizenship. Great. I think I know the answer to this next one. What artist today is repping Latinidad in the best way? Bad Bunny. Dime, vamos para el mambo, no vamos para el mambo. Tú me dices, mami. Zumba. Why Bad Bunny? Because I think he's really true to who he is and he doesn't he doesn't care about crossing over or like he doesn't talk about oh I sh- I want to cross over to the mainstream like he understands that Latinos are a mainstream and he's just you know he is who he is and he he doesn't try to like perform I think he's just doing what he really loves and singing the music he loves and really centering Puerto Rican people in his music. And he doesn't need to do anything else. People will come to that. Bad Bunny is killing the game. He is a genius and a true artist. And if his name happens to be in a headline, you will most likely see the term Latinx near it. Like this one from Hispanic Network Magazine. Why Bad Bunny Matters to a New Generation of Latinx Fans, or this one from E! News. Bad Bunny on breaking down stereotypes in the Latinx community and his dream of starting a fashion line. It seems like this term Latinx has just kind of creeped into the language the last few years. When I asked my producers about hearing the term for the first time, they both said that they heard it after the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando where more than 40 people of the LGBT community were gunned down in 2016. In fact, one of our listeners, Jeff Centric, was a survivor that night and gave me his thoughts about the term. I am a Latino, brown, queer person. I am a Puerto Rican from up north. I'm from New York and Boston. And I am also one of the survivors of the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting. Um, Out of the 49 who were killed in the mass shooting, I lost six of my friends and myself. I was shot multiple times um, and I died. And uh, thankfully I was able to be brought back. Right. And, and, um, but yeah, I I know what it's like to face hate uh, for just being who you are, whether it's being Brown, Latino, Hispanic, or gay. Now, how do I feel about uh, the term Latinx? Well, as a, as a queer Latino and historian, at first, the term Latinx bothered me. You know, now I embrace it and I embrace it. You know, I embrace all the terms. To me, Latin, Latinx, Latino, Latina, Latin, Latine, uh, Hispanic, mixed race, indigenous, African, Spanish, you know, brown people, POC, et cetera. It, it all, it's all reflective of who I am and, and um, reflective of the DNA and the blood that runs through my veins. So I embrace it all. You know, I, I, I'm not bothered by any of it anymore. Um, as they all say, I mean, they all generally point to the same description when you think about it. And when people use it, instead of getting upset or jumping to correct them, I just sit back and let them speak as I am grown enough to, you know, understand the context in which they are using it. It's not always out of malice or disrespect, you know, rather it's, it's just inclusive or explanatory during conversation. Thank you for sharing that beautiful message, Jeff. Now... If you've been listening to the show or if you're just tuning in, the word I like to use a lot to identify myself and my people is brown. You know, it's the name of my book. It's the name of the show. I think we are brown and I think we are beautiful. 
That does not mean that I am negating my Latinidad or not proud of my Latinidad. And on occasion, I even use the term Latinx. The whole idea to me is that we are more than one term. We are living outside of a box. But I was a bit surprised to learn that only 3% of Latin Americans actually use the term Latinx. And it's mostly young people between the ages of 18 to 29. Any thoughts? How often are you using the term? What do you think is good about it, bad about it? You know, I think the term is fine. I mean, I think that it, it serves a purpose. It is definitely one of the more, most inclusive terms, right? Because it's not it's not gendered. Like the Spanish language is gendered, right? There, there, there are O's and A's at the end of words that that give it a masculine or feminine um, connotation, and and that's what the language is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with changing language. Like we've we all do that. You know, my Spanish as a Mexican woman is different than the Spanish that you might speak. So we're all kind of evolving language. And so I think that that people who don't like the term because they think, oh, you know, you're you're disrespecting Spanish in some way, I think that that's like a very weak argument against the term. And I think that if people identify with it and they um, want to embrace the term, then that's fine. And if you don't like the term, then you don't have to use it. You know, you don't have to use it to refer to yourself. So I personally use it. Um, I use it sometimes. I particularly use it when I write, when I'm writing about the community. Um, I try to use the most inclusive term possible. So sometimes I use Latinx, sometimes I use Latine. Um, I think in conversation, I rarely ever say the Latinx community. Um, in just like a casual conversation with friends, I think most of us are still kind of using Latino as like the colloquial term that we use for the community. But when I'm writing, when I'm referring to the community, I do try to use what is most inclusive. Inclusive, and that is the key word. The term is not only gender neutral, but it also includes every community, whether you are straight, queer, non-binary, or transgender, anyone who identifies with Latin American heritage. But some politicians just don't get it, or they don't want to get it. And now they want to dictate the language that we use, such as Republican governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Newly sworn in Arkansas governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a Republican, is making some waves. Just after taking the oath of office, Huckabee Sanders signed an executive order banning the term Latinx in state documents. That's a term used as a gender neutral alternative to Hispanic or Latino. NBC News digital reporter Nicole Acevedo is following this story for us. She's just pandering to a section of the Latino community who has attached themselves to whiteness, to Republicans, to this idea of standing against, quote unquote, wokeness, right? And it's all just a bunch of bullshit because if you want to respect our community, how about actually teach real Latino history in Arkansas school curriculum. If you want to respect our community, how about, you know, giving driver's licenses to undocumented people in Arkansas? If you want to respect our community, how about, you know, giving us real economic opportunities, 
right? Like those are the things that you can actually do to show respect for our community, not sitting here banning warts. Like, are you like, like are you actually going to do something when somebody's called a wetback? You know, are you actually going to do something when somebody's told to go back to where they came from? Are you actually going to do something when, you know, somebody's told this is America, speak English? Those are the things that you can do and stand up against to actually show respect for our community. So before you think that she is actually trying to do something good for our community, think again. As the cliche goes, and cliches are only cliches because they're true, actions speak louder than words. The term Latinx was added to Merriam-Webster in 2018, and the following year, the Oxford English Dictionary added it to their list. Yet, the Royal Academy of Spanish has not included the term in their language. So, I asked Julissa to hit me with a brief history of some of the other terms that are used to identify us, like the term Hispanic. Some of the history really teaches us that, you know, these terms came about as it related to the census and how to count people that up until that point had been counted as white. The term Hispanic appeared in the census for the first time in the 1970 census in the long form, which not every household filled out. So it wasn't until the 1980 census that that the version that it's closer to what we have now, which is, you know, are you Hispanic, Latino, um, Spanish, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, was added to the short form um, that everybody fills out or everybody's asked to fill out. Julissa was born in Mexico. When she was 11 years old, she moved to the U.S. So for her, checking off a box on the census has always been a complicated thing. She points out that in the 1930 census, Mexican appeared as a category. This was the first and only time, and this meant something incredibly special. It's actually a beautiful thing. I know, like I said, I I know there's like a lot of cynics, um, and rightfully so, but I like to look at that moment in history, at those um, fights um, from our community as us wanting to be seen, as us wanting to be recognized, as us starting to reject whiteness and reject this idea that we are white, because the majority of us are not. And, you know, recently the Biden administration did propose that we should have, that Latino um, should be a race in the census. And to me, that's a welcome change. They're making other changes such as expanding the definition of Native American to include all indigenous people to the Americas, which I think is a beautiful thing um, because, you know, it really expands that definition. So more more of us will be able to, to Um, I certainly will feel more comfortable checking that box, knowing that it includes indigenous people from the whole hemisphere, not just um, North American tribes and people belonging to tribes. But Julissa also understands why we definitely shouldn't lump everyone into just one category. I do understand the drawbacks of lumping together this incredibly diverse group of people, right, as like one race or as like, one group, whether it's an ethnicity or, or a race, to say, like, all Latinos, you know, we share this thing. And so I'm not at all suggesting that that we're all the same, because race is a really poor indicator anyways of 
of of people's experiences. And just because we share a race or we share an ethnicity doesn't mean we're the same, right? And so I do understand that. And I do also understand that the concern is if we're all being counted together, how might that affect indigenous Latinos and black Latinos, people who are already marginalized within the within the marginalized community, they're even more marginalized, right? So I do get the concerns and the drawbacks of this, but I still believe that for purposes of the, of the census, right? So, so much of what I'm talking about is really for purposes of the census and how we are counted and how resources are distributed because of that census, that there should be a better way for us to be counted. You know, things like police shootings, police departments are not required most of the time to report on the ethnicity of someone. They are required to report on the race of someone. So we don't even have a clear picture of the number of Latinos who are shot and killed by police every year because of how data is counted, right? And so and so for these reasons, I think it's important for there to be a better way to count us. Y'all, I'm going to keep saying it. We are not a monolith. And those people making decisions for us, they just don't get it. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are leaving the headlines about ethnic labels and jumping to a more personal topic about how we express or do not express our identity. And Jalissa is going to explain the three myths of assimilation. Stick around, y'all. You don't want to miss this. And we are back with the amazing Julissa Arce. In high school, Julissa had this crush on a boy who had told her, you sound like a white girl. She took this as a compliment since she had tried so hard to enunciate every word she spoke in English to sound like she was from here. For her, that meant being white, to assimilate to American culture, to shed everything she was to be something she wasn't. Now fast forward, Julissa grows up, becomes a published author, and in her latest book, You Sound Like a White Girl, she addresses her identity and assimilation through three myths. The subtitle of the book is The Case for Rejecting Assimilation, right? And that's what I'm talking about in the book is why we should reject this idea of assimilating into whiteness and trying to belong vis-a-vis proximity to whiteness. So the three lies that I talk about are the lie of whiteness, the lie of English, and the lie of success. Um, The lie of whiteness being that if you can be close to whiteness, that then you'll belong, you'll be accepted. Um, The lie of English is just that if you learn how to speak English, then like your life will absolutely be better, you'll belong. And the truth is that even when we have learned how to speak English, um, you know, it's still not a guarantee for acceptance in this country. And English has been used to segregate us in schools. English has been used to deport us. English has been used against us in so many different ways. Um, And the lie of success is, you know, I, I think, and I believed this lie for a long time. I used to work on Wall Street. I, uh, I used to think that if I had enough money, I would get enough respect. Right? And then I, people I probably would, still would, believe this lie. <laughs> Do you not uh, listen, believe it anymore? No, hell no. I, I, I do believe that money is very helpful. 
And while I don't think money makes you happy, money certainly helps. Money gives you access. Money does give people a certain amount of power. But I think we would fool ourselves into thinking that just because we have money, that's what's going to make white people accept us. Because you can still have a lot of money and still you know, be driving a really nice car in a really nice neighborhood and get pulled over by the police. You know, I, I, I give a, um, a personal anecdote in the book of going out to eat, drink, um, eat and drink with my colleagues at this really fancy restaurant in Tribeca. We were like celebrating a deal, a big deal we had closed. And I was wearing all black, as you do in New York. And I went to the bathroom. And on my way back, this like table of mostly white people kept asking me to bring them water. Oh, wow. Because they thought I was the waitress, right? And so, or like going to a, a store um, on Rodeo Drive here in LA and this, you know, total pretty woman moment, like this woman taking this necklace literally from my neck and saying, do you know what Prada is? You know? And it's like, bitch, you don't, you don't know the size of my bank account, you know? And that's what I mean about the lie, about success being a lie. Um, and I think mo- more than anything is just being aware of how these things can serve us and also of the ways in which these ideas are used to lie to us and to keep us from creating our own spaces and finding our own identity and celebrating ourselves as we are rather than giving up all of these things about ourselves in order to try to fit into a white world that is never actually going to accept us. I'm not going to lie. I've had that thought that when when I feel disrespected, I think like you literally don't know my worth as if my worth is some numbers in an account. Yeah. It's uh, and how that's so attached to us. Yeah. And, and our lives have value because they do. We don't need, you know, and I say this in the book, we don't need a six figure paycheck. We don't need um, a fancy diploma. We don't need, um, you know, a big 401k we don't need any of these things for our lives to have value. But that's what we've been told, you know? We've been told that our, our lives are worth only as much as the money that we have in our pockets. And that's one of the biggest lies of all. And I'm not the only one inspired by Julissa's work. Julissa was also affirmed and honored by none other than her favorite writer, Reina Grande, who's my favorite author, my mentor. Um, But this is a blurb she gave about my book. Um, She said, illuminating. You sound like a white girl debunks age-old historical myths and instead offers us forgotten truths that will help us make sense of our country today. You will not think the same after reading this book. What are you working on next? I'm writing a script. Um... And I'm excited to be uh, experimenting with a new art form and seeing where that takes me. I'm, I'm already producing um, a few TV and film projects and just really wanted to see what would it look like if I was not just producing them, but also writing them. Um, and so I am um, working on that. And uh, it's, a, it's like a fun cheerleader movie. It's a it's a cheerleader movie, and I've always wanted to write a cheerleader movie. Um, and then the other thing is, I'm working on a novel about 
a woman who doesn't want to have kids and ends up having three daughters and Mm. how her relationship with her daughters heals her relationship with her mother. Gracias, Julissa, for sharing all your knowledge with us today. I cannot wait to see where your next projects land. I know they will be incredible. And congratulations on the beautiful baby that is on its way. You can follow Julissa on Twitter and Instagram at Julissa Arce. That is J-U-L-I-S-S-A-A-R-C-E. Her book, You Sound Like a White Girl, is out now. Go get a copy today. All her books. Go get a copy of them. Thank you. Peace and love, y'all. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producers Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford, and a special thanks to Brendan Burns and Abby Aguilar. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to the podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. Don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Witness Docs from Stitcher.